The following podcast is from Doxa Church in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org. So last week we started our new series it's called In Spite of Us, the story of God and his people in 1 Samuel. And we looked at how that the, the book opens in a really dark time in Israel's history, an incredibly dark time. It's really Israel's dark ages. Uh, the, the, the scene is bad. So the scene is set at the, beginning, at the ending of Judges, which is the book in, in timeline that goes before this. And it ends and says that in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so as First Samuel opens, we see people just doing whatever they want. We're doing whatever is right in their own eyes. People have not heard the word of God through a prophet for 400 years. And the priesthood, who Eli, who plays into this story, that Eli heads up, the priesthood itself is gone to pot. Like the, the priests, and Eli's sons, are extorting people and taking sexually advantage of women as they come to worship. So it is a really dark, really terrible time in Israel. It's really dark. And so it's interesting how 1 Samuel opens, and it doesn't open with a, a king. It doesn't open with a ruler. It opens with a family. It opens with Elkanah and his two wives, which, by the way, just, you know, polygamy is not cool. Every time we see polygamy, it, it's described in the Bible. Uh, even before it is unlawful, uh, it is always shown to be something that does not end well, which is what we see here. He has two wives. He has Hannah, who is his first wife, who he loves, and he has Peninnah, who is his second wife. He probably married her because Hannah was not bearing children, so he had to marry a second wife so she would have children. So Peninnah does. She starts popping out the babies, and Hannah, meanwhile, is over to the side, and her heart is broken. She has her, we talked about it last week, her one big thing, her crisis, the big thing in her life that makes her feel like I'm not enough. I can't live up to enough. I can never be enough. This problem, it crippled her. It was her one big thing in life. And so we talked about how not only did Hannah have her one big thing, but all of us have our one big thing in life. And that may, that may be something that is constant throughout your whole life. It might be something that you can never achieve. It might be something that's happened to you in your past. It might be something with your family. You might, you might have been assaulted or abused at some point that you can never get over. It might be something that in your career that you can never quite attain or so something that you can't ever quite get your hands around. It's like a brass ring that is all that you can never quite grab. You never can get there. You can never get over it. It might be a besetting sin that is constantly like you're like, man, I was dealing with this five years ago. I was dealing with this 10 years ago and I'm still dealing with it today and I can never get open. I'm just ready to, to get past it, not have to deal with it anymore. And we said that we all have that one big thing. It might be something that lasts for your whole life. Or it might be something that lasts for a season. But it's that one big thing, that brass ring that we can't grab, that we can't attain to. And that was Hannah's big thing, is that she could not bear children. And we talked about how, that, that for Hannah, how she, she finally got to a point where she made her one big thing, God's thing. And it ended like, hey, isn't it cool? Like, we make our one big thing, God's thing, and then he, he'll do amazing things with that. And that is absolutely and utterly true. But what we're going to do today is we're going to, like, dive in a little bit closer, a little more microscopic view and see how exactly does that happen. 
How does that sort of wrestling, that surgery that takes place for us to take our thing that, that seems to like really cripple us in life and weigh us down. How does God take that thing and free us from that thing? So here's how we're going to do it this morning. We're going to start with Hannah's great moment of triumph. This prayer, this song, this poem that she prays to the Lord in chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. We're going to start with this great moment of triumph. This, this poem, this song, it, it, it ca- really caps Hannah's experience with the Lord. And we're going to start with there, and then we're going to work our way backwards to see how does she get to that point. How does she get, because this, this song, this poem, this prayer is full of rejoicing. How does she get to the place of rejoicing from the place of weeping? How does she move to this place where she's exalted and like, awesome, like so awestruck and excited about who God is and what he has done in her life? How does she get there from the point of weeping and bitterness when she's overcome? And we're going to try to do that by answering these three questions. Number one, what makes Hannah fit to be used by God? So as we see her, she's praying this prayer. What makes her fit to be used by God? Then we're going to ask the question, what made Hannah fit to be used by God? And then we're going to ask the question, who made Hannah fit to be used by God? What makes Hannah fit to be used by God? What made Hannah fit to be used by God? And then who made Hannah fit to be used by God. So when we last saw Hannah, towards the end of the passage last week, she had been weeping and pouring out her great anxiety and vexation, the text says, before the Lord. It's really moving if you see these passages. In verse 10, it says she was deeply distressed, which means like really like deeply Distress is, is deep like depression and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. That's that uncontrollable, ugly cry. It's not like cute little like tears running down the side of your eye. It's that ugly cry that all of us, no matter how manly or how strong you make yourself have to be, at some point something has overcome you and you might be alone in your room or you might be embarrassed out in public or you might be in your car where you think, isn't it funny how we would get in our car and we think nobody else can see us? Like we're talking to ourselves or we're singing to ourselves or praying or crying and like there's windows that surround us so we can see the road but somehow we think we're in this magic bubble and nobody can see us it's kind of interesting if you think about it it might have been in the car you're doing this ugly cry but we she was weeping bitterly she was deeply distressed she is so moved she is so distressed that when Eli the priest comes into the temple and he sees her praying she he assumes this woman is drunk that's how overcome that she was She was incredibly distressed. And she says, no, my Lord, verse 15, I am a woman troubled in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have been pouring out my soul before the Lord. She says, I have been speaking out of my great anxiety and vexation. And that's when we start to see this change happen in her. She's been pouring out before the Lord, which is a key phrase, by the way. There's several times in here that she she wasn't just praying to the Lord. 
She's praying before the Lord. So this concept in her mind that she was in his presence, pouring out her great anxiety and vexation to him. And this change started to happen when Eli says, this good-for-nothing priest, he says, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition that you have made to him. And she said, Let your servant find favor in your eyes. Then the woman, that's Hannah, went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So that's where the story starts to turn for her. Then it says they rose early in the morning as her family, and they worshiped before the Lord. And they went back to their house at Ramah, or Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife. And the Lord remembered her. And in due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son. And she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him from the Lord. No one could console her, not even her husband. We saw last week how the, her husband came to her and said, man, isn't it good enough for you that I love you? And is it my love like the love of seven sons? And she, and she said, no, it's not. She continued to cry and pour out. She went out and, and poured out to the Lord. Like, I lo- I'm so grateful that you love me, but that, that's not enough. It doesn't replace the fact that I don't have sons. He tries to console her. She tries to console herself. Eli tries to stop her, and nobody can stop this torrent of vexation and bitterness that is pouring out before her. So she, is, she was unconsolable. She goes to the Lord. She prays. Eli says, go in peace. All of a sudden, her countenance changes. She goes out and eats, and she goes home. And now we have this amazing poem and song. If you fast forward a bit in Hannah's story, this is one of the most amazing prayers in the Bible. Hannah, this rural, probably uneducated, most certainly uneducated woman from the backside of Israel, fairly wealthy, but almost certainly uneducated and rural. Her prayer, her poem, her song becomes known as one of the great prayers of the Bible. In fact, it becomes so popular and so well-known that when the angel comes and visits Mary, when he tells her she's going to conceive and bear Jesus Christ, her prayer, the Magnificent, is actually based upon Hannah's prayer. It's based upon Hannah's song. And the prayer is full of joy. This woman who we just saw weeping bitterly, Unconsolable by even her husband. The priest thinks she's drunk as she is praying in the temple. It starts off in verse 1. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exults in the Lord. When you, say, when you see that word exults, like it's an old school word and maybe it doesn't mean anything to you, but it means like my heart is having a party before the Lord. My heart is celebrating. My heart is, is it is, it is, almost like taunting. It is saying, look what the Lord has done. It is uncontrollable excitement. Something has moved her from unconsolable grief to uncontrollable excitement. My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn, which means my, my source of strength, is exalted in the Lord. Now listen to this, and this is kind of interesting. My mouth derides my enemies. Who was her enemy? Well, her, the, yeah, the rival wife. So that's kind of interesting. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord. There's none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Now, we would, it is full of joy, and we would expect it to be so, right? 
Because we just saw the end of that previous passage. In due time, Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel, for she said, I have asked for him for the, from the Lord. So we would expect her to be excited, right? She got what she was praying for. It's like, I've been praying for this car. Like, uh, my wife, before we got married, she was driving this junky, junky car. Like, it is, like, held together by, like, dental floss. It is barely held together. And she prayed and prayed, and God brought her a new car. Now, that's a whole other story. You should ask her about it. It wasn't the, the most desirable car itself, but it was this super long, old-school car. Like, the, the, the door was, like, eight feet long and weighed, like, three tons. But it was a car that was far better than her previous car. And she, even though it was ugly, she exulted in the Lord. She was so thankful and excited. God gave her a car. She needed a car. She had no idea how she was going to get one. God gave her one. So we would expect Hannah to be amazingly excited. She got exactly what she'd been praying for. But there's two very interesting things about this prayer that make it stand out to us. Because even though she got what she'd been praying for, she didn't get it in the most ideal way. The things that stand out in this, in this prayer that she prays, in this song that she sings, in this poem that she wrote, is when the prayer comes and then the content of the prayer itself. When the prayer comes and the content. Now, this is interesting. When does she pray this prayer full of exultant, ecstatic excitement? She doesn't pray this prayer whenever she conceives and bears the son. She prays this prayer when she's in Shiloh turning her son, who she loves tenderly, who she has nursed at her breast for probably about three years. Her son, she's bringing to a strange place and turning over to a strange man and is going to walk away. This son that the Lord gave me, I am lending him back to the Lord. Now, it wasn't super uh, unusual for someone to uh, lend their son or their child to the Lord, but it was almost always for a certain amount of time. I'm going to bring my son to the temple and he's going to help out for the next year. I'm lending him to the Lord for this year. But Hannah says, I'm lending him to the Lord as long as he lives. Think about that. She's praying this prayer full of exultant, excited, ecstatic joy. At the moment, she's handing her beloved son over to Eli. We don't know if he's talking by this time. We don't know what is going on with him at this time, but we know that she's going to miss out on really major events in his life. She's not going to be there when he falls and trips and skins his knee and he needs his mom to hold him and care for him. She's not, she's not going to be around whenever he is uh, experiencing new things in life and just to see the excitement on his face. She's not going to be around him whenever he has questions and he's scared at night when he's lying in bed and he's crying out for somebody to comfort him. This child for whom she has waited, she's turning him over to the Lord. And she's, she is giving him up for all intents and purposes. She's not going to be able to email him or call him. They're not going to be able to FaceTime. 
There's going to be no meaningful way for her to keep up with her son in Shiloh, except for the one time she comes once a year to offer the sacrifice. At this moment where she's offering her son up to the Lord, she's praying a prayer that is full of excitement and joy. That's interesting and flabbergasting. And then the other thing that stands out is the content of the prayer. Except for verse 1, I'm sorry, yeah, verse 1 where she says, My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. This prayer, this song, is not about her. It's not even really so much about God, how God answered her prayer. The song, the prayer, is dramatically about God. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. Verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Verse 6. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash. For not by might, verse 9, shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord, not her adversaries now in verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The two things that stand out is when this prayer comes, when she, while she is turning her child over to the Lord, and then the content of the prayer. It is majorly focused on God and not on her and her answer to her prayer. And we see here, this is what makes Hannah safe for God to use. This is what makes Hannah fit for God to use. It all happens really, it all really starts to turn not when she conceives and bears a son. It all really turns whenever she's been pouring out and speaking out her great anxiety and vexation to the Lord. And then Eli answers her, go in peace. And she leaves with a face that's no longer sad, even though she is not pregnant. She has no assurance that anything is going to happen to change her circumstances. She, what has happened here, and this is what is, makes her fit to be used by God, is that Hannah has turned the ownership of her problem over to someone else. And that's what makes her have a peaceful face and is able to leave with a, some sort of joy after nothing has changed in her circumstances. God was answering her prayer and he was going to answer her prayer. But the, the prayer, the answer was going to be much larger than her prayer. See, she was praying for a son. But Israel needed a prophet. She was praying for a son. But Israel needed a prophet that would be wholly devoted to the Lord. She was praying for a child. But God needed a man that would be his man in Israel to speak his word and his truth so that David, who would be the great, 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 great grandfather of Jesus, 
He can make him king. She was praying for one thing, but the answer was much bigger than what she was praying for. And what makes her fit to be used by God, what makes her safe for God to use her, is that in that moment, in this wrestling, and this is not a quick wrestle, but in this wrestling that had been going on, she had been suddenly freed from the the sense of internal expectation and pressure from inside her. We all have some sort of internal pressure and some sort of internal expectation about life. I think I should look like this. I think I should have this much money in my bank account. I think I should be in this place in my career. I think I should have this many children. I think my children should be acting like this. I think I should be able to drive this kind of car. I think I should be living here. Whatever it is that is pushing you inside. I think I should be smarter. I think, what, I, think I should be able to, I don't know, whatever it is your thing. I should be able to do this. And we have this sense of inner pressure that's pushing on us because it, and it's only exacerbated by the fact that we live in a society that is, a, is based upon what you are able to, how you are able to succeed. It's an achievement-based society. So when I'm not able to, my, my, my life is not able to correspond to this inner sense of how my, I think I should be able to achieve, what I should be able to do, how high I should be able to jump, how smart I should be able to be, how much I should be able to get, be getting paid in my job. When it's not meeting that expectation, that pressure pushes upon us and we always feel like a failure. But then we're a slave to it because then when we think we're succeeding, man, I feel great. But when I'm not, I feel terrible. And we're always riding this roller coaster whether I'm meeting my expectations, this inner pressure that I have or not. She'd been delivered from that sense of internal pressure and expectations, and she'd also been freed from this sense of external comparison. We all have that, right? I know it's not just me. Where, where you look over somebody else, you say like, okay, like, well, you know, they're more athletic than I am, but I'm smarter than they are, at least. Uh, is that embarrassing for me to say out loud? Though we, don't we don't have to nod your head, but don't we think these thoughts like, oh, oh like, uh, oh, they're they're smarter than I am, but at least my wife is prettier or my husband is better looking. Yeah, they're like, they're, look, look at how big their house is, but look how messy it is. Mine is at least clean. We all find something, this sort of external comparison, and we see it in her life. It's so clear, right? Penina had many children, and she did not. Penina. You know, just twisted that knife all the time in her, tormenting her and vexing her. And we all have our tormentors and our vexers. Sometimes it's people intentionally putting that on us, and sometimes they don't have to say a word. We just look over and we see them, and we feel the knife turning in our hearts. What made her safe to be used is that she would have been free from the sense of internal pressure and expectation and from this sense of external comparison and also from societal pressures or societal expectations. Like society says you should look like this or you should be like this. At this age, you should have this many kids. You should be married. You should be making this much money in your life. You should be this educated, whatever it is for us. This is of external societal expectations that push and press upon us. And all of a sudden she was freed. Because in her society, for a woman not to be able to have children would meant that she was less than. It wasn't just that she felt less than. Society said, you are. 
And our society says over and over again, if you don't make as much money as X person, they are more valuable than you because they make more money than you do. If you are not as good looking as this person, they are more valuable because they are better looking than you are. We see that she has wrestled through till she's got a new sense of her identity and her value. And that's what makes her safe for God to use. We see her pray this prayer, sing this song, recite this poem. She's exalting, she's praising, she's celebrating in God alone. Yeah, he gave her a kid. But she turned the kid back over to him. That kid's not going to change her everyday life. She's still going to be sitting at the table across from Peninnah and all her children alone. She's not providing an heir to her husband. She's not providing any help through Samuel for the farm. Her value is no, really no greater in the end, except the fact that she bore a son in her daily life. But she's exalted and filled with joy in God alone. She's found her joy in him What made Hannah fit to be used by God? What what brought her to this point? Here's the, the thing. It happened for Hannah and it happens for us. Hannah had almost certainly made having a child her whole life. If she didn't have one, then she wasn't valuable. And Hannah did what we do. We are, all of us, every single one of us, not just tempted, but we constantly try to build our lives around good things, but make them ultimate things. Is it a good thing for a woman to want to have a child? It is a wonderful thing. God said, be fruitful and multiply. It is a wonderful thing to want that. Is it good to want a wife or a husband? Is it good to want a job? Is it good to want a career? Is it good to want to educate? Nothing, nothing's bad about any of those things. The problem is when we take a good thing and we make it our ultimate thing. And we wrap our lives, we bend our lives around them. And our value and our identity rises and falls as our circumstances do. Like the waves that toss in the sea. And what we see with Hannah is that God used a process to make her usable. God used a process to make Hannah usable by him. And here's the process he used. And this is not like real encouraging news for everybody this morning. But you know what he used in Hannah? And he's going to use in you and me to free us from the good things that we've made ultimate things and bent our life around them. He's going to use pain. He's going to use weakness. And he's going to use time. He's going to use pain. He's going to use weakness. And he's going to use time. It hurt like heck for Hannah not to get what she wanted in her life, for her not to have that child. It hurt her incredibly. She felt weak and less than everybody else around her was able to have kids. Think about it. 
Every single time, and some of you ladies have experienced this, every single time somebody announced with joy they were gonna, they're gonna have a child, it was like the knife twisting in her. God used that pain and he used her weakness and he used time. And that's something that's easy for us to run over kind of quickly in these stories. Because it like takes like a sentence or so to tell us. Moses in the backside of the desert. 40 years between the time that he fled Egypt and God came and spoke to him on the mountain. What was God doing to him at that time? I don't know exactly, but I do know he was using pain and he was using weakness and he was using time to work in Moses. It says here, like year after year, they would come to Shiloh to offer sacrifices and it would vex her soul. That's easy to read in a sentence. It's hard to live out. Year after year, day after day, God using that time, that pain and that her weakness and that pressure. But it has to be. God has to use time and he has to use pain and pressure in order to get most of us to move. Because those little guys that we worship, and that's what all those things are that we just talked about. Those, th- those good things that become ultimate things in our lives. God, those little gods that we worship are too willing to please us. They keep us just happy enough, don't they? they we never get the brass ring that they promise, but they keep us just satisfied enough. We're just satisfied enough in our sin. We're just satisfied enough in our pursuit of money or career or education. We're just satisfied enough in all those things that we keep reaching for. We're just satisfied enough to not cause us to pursue anything greater, anything deeper. Those little guys that we worship are too nice to us. They're too comfortable to us. They're impotent to deliver on the promises that they make, but they are great Enablers. Those little guys that we worship are amazing enablers. You know what an enabler is, right? It's someone who fuels the addiction that you have. And you know and they know that this is not going to, at some point, you know, like this is not going to end well, but you cannot break yourself from that codependent cycle of them enabling you and feeling good about it and then that pushing you further down the hole. And those little guys that we worship are great enablers, though they are impotent to deliver on the promises that they make. The process God uses, the pain and the, our weakness and the time, the process is painful. It hurts It hurts like heck. I wish I could use a different word, Dale. It hurts like heck when the dearest part of ourself is being cut off. And that's what it will feel like. It hurts like heck. The the process is painful, but that's what it feels like to die to something. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's not just something that we put on coffee mugs or a calendar. It is a call for us to follow him and find life. But we only find life through dying to ourselves. And dying feels like death. 
There is life on the other side of the pain. There's life on the other side of our weakness. There's life on the other side of the process. But we must die to the false life that we've wrapped our lives around, that we've wrapped our most precious hopes and dreams around. There's life on the other side, but we have to reject the false gods that we have worshipped in order to embrace the one and true God who offers us true life, eternal and abundant. But it's those pains of, 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 of pain that are often why we turn back. It's those pangs of pain that cause us to not go any further. This guy came to Jesus. He was a rich guy and he was a religious guy. And he said, great teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus responded to him that, well, you need to keep the commandments. And this guy, who was a great guy, by the way, said, I have kept them all from my youth. And Jesus said, okay, do this then. Sell everything that you have and follow me. And the man went away sad and dejected because he couldn't. Why couldn't he? Because he had wrapped his life around money. And the God money was with the God, the little God that he worshipped. And the pain of separating himself from that God to follow the true God was too great for him. And he turned away. The question that is for us is like, how long will it take our gods to die? How much pain, how much pressure, how long will it take you for your and my gods to die? Because God will use time. He will play the long game. He will, if you are his child, he will do whatever he has to do to make sure that your worship does not rest on lesser gods. He will come after those gods with a ferociousness. And he will destroy them. And it will feel like pain. But he promises you and I life abundant and eternal on the other side. That to me is the greatest, extra, greatest miracle that we see that happens in this story with Hannah. Not that he gives Hannah a child. But that he changed Hannah's heart. So that he could give her the child. So she would devote him to him. Sometimes God calms the storm, and sometimes he guides us through it. Sometimes we eat at a banquet table, and sometimes he feeds us bread from the beak of a raven. But it doesn't matter once he's changed us inside. That's the greater miracle even than Samuel being born. Where do we find the power that changed Hannah? We find it in her prayer. We find who made Hannah fit to be used by God. We see from the, the contents of this prayer, it is theologically and doctrinally rich. I read a, uh, a commentary and the commentator said pain had made Hannah a theologian. 
This is an incredibly rich and full, it's full of great theology, great doctrine. And what we see is that Hannah has looked at God's word and she has looked at history and she's learned something that keys something about God. And this is the thing that turns us, that allows us to, to reject the pain, to reject the idols and endure the pain of them dying in order to follow Christ and find life eternal in him. And it's first of all, She's learned that God is all-powerful. We see that all over this prayer, right? How powerful and great he is. It's God who raises up. It's God who puts down. The Lord, he is him who makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. It's him, it's his power that moves. She's seen in history that it's God's power that moves things. But also the other great thing that unlocks the the door to her heart that we, that we see is unlock the door to her heart is the other truth is not only is God powerful, but we, she knows that God moves toward the weak. God is powerful, but God moves towards the weak. It's really when God brings us to a state of exhaustion through pain, through exposing our weakness and through time. And Hannah could no longer look to her husband or family or anybody else for comfort. She goes to God and pours it out to him. And she remembers and realizes that God is all powerful, but also it's God moves towards the weak and the lowly. It's there that we see that God has changed her heart. And it's when God brings us all to that state of exhaustion when we're just spent of looking for identity and value and meaning anywhere else other than him. We finally look to him and we bow our knee to him as the all-powerful creator God who moves toward the weak. Hear that. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. Listen to this. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash. Look before that in verses four, verse 4. It says the bows of the mighty are broken. So those who think they're strong, they are, end up being broken. But the feeble, that wording there means they find strength in God. Those who are full now have hired them out, out for bread. But those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The point there in all this prayer is that Hannah has realized this is what makes her exalt and celebrate and party in the Lord is that she has realized that God moves toward the weak. And it's only in her realizing that she is weak and brings nothing to the table and looks to him as the all-powerful, all-satisfying God that she finds joy. She believes, she sees that God orchestrated her circumstances. God ordained her greatest problem. We saw that before. This is the, the, the Lord that made her bear. And we don't understand how that works, but we know that he did in this, at least in this case. God used her tormentors and God was patient over time to show him, to show her himself. This poem this song, this prayer, 
is the last time we're going to hear from Hannah in the whole entire Bible. And the cool thing is, Hannah is totally fine with that. She doesn't want us to remember her bravery and her greatness. She's realized that it's God who is great and all-sufficient. And let's look at where her heart turns, what, as we close, what turns her. She says, verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. And this is the interest, maybe the most interesting phrase in the whole entire prayer. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. What's fascinating is this is Israel does not have a king and has never had a king when she prays this prayer. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. And that word anointed there is the same word that would come to mean Messiah. She's ending this prayer talking about God's greatness and how he moves towards those who are weak. And finding her, and she's finding sufficiency in the fact as she gives a prophecy that a king is coming and, and an anointed one is coming. God raises up the lowly when we realize that we are lowly. And we know that he does that because he did that in Jesus. Jesus came not as a king great and conquering, but he came as a king in incredible weakness. And he bore your weakness and your sin and my sin. And that's the king that she is looking to hundreds and hundreds of years before that will happen. And when she sees that, that's what makes God not only almighty, but that's what makes him beautiful. And it's that beauty that is powerful enough in our hearts to unlock our hearts and steer us away from the false gods we've wrapped our lives around. It's that beauty that gives us the ability to endure the pain of separation as we pull away and die to those false little gods to find life in Him. He is incredibly beautiful. And He is all satisfying. The false little gods never, ever deliver fully on their promises. But he absolutely does and will. We know he will because our weak, crucified Savior is now exalted in glory and power at the right hand of the Father. If you're here this morning... Maybe you've been running from him for a long time. Maybe you've been chasing those little gods for a long time. Maybe you've been searching for water and wells that are consistently dry. This morning, bow your knee to him. This morning, accept his his exchange of your weakness and your sin for his life. Make him your king this morning. And for all of us who are believers, let's let God expose those little gods in our heart. 
and give us the power and ability through the risen Christ to turn away from them and endure the pain to find life at the end. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Doxa Church. We are so glad that you took the time to join us today. At Doxa, we exist to make disciples who joyfully worship Jesus with their whole lives. We invite you to join us. Doxa Church meets at 10 a.m. every Sunday at River Oaks Elementary School. For more information about Doxa Church, please visit us online at www.doxachurch.org.